when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to episode 68, in which we tackle the new war film. Or is it rescue film? Or maybe it's a horror film. Well, the new film by our favorite director, Christopher Nolan. I'm Aaron, and as always, I'm here with my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Hey, everyone. Patrick, I am extremely excited to talk about this movie with you. But before we do that, uh, let me make a quick announcement. Recently, we had an opening in our show episode schedule. Two weeks from now, we need to fill a slot. So we decided to cover something from last year. That's 2016, if you're listening to us a long time in the future. Uh, And what we're doing is letting our loyal Facebook group members choose. There is a poll up now as the pinned post, so it's the very top. And it will remain there until episode 69 comes out next week. The movies to choose between are Edge of Seventeen and Kubo and the Two Strings. As of this recording, it is currently tied, so we need your help. There is a link to join the group in the show notes, and you can also find that on our website, or just search for it on Facebook. We'd love to have you come help us pick episode 70. Yes, we would. It's always interesting when we get together and schedule new episodes and movies. And this time of year, uh, it's great to have the opportunity to throw that out there and have you, the listeners, help us pick because these two films are incredibly hard to choose from. I honestly have not seen them. I've been waiting to watch them uh, either for an episode or just when the timing is right. And I know most people who have seen these being like, the time is always right to watch these films, according to at least you, Aaron, and, and some other people that have just raved about both of them. So I'm excited about whichever one we we look at and, and review. But in the meantime, while we're waiting, let's go ahead and talk about what we've been up to, shall we? Oh, yes, absolutely. What have you been up to, Patrick? Well, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I got to be a part of the 48-hour film project, and this past weekend, our group of 12 of the 24 participating teams had their film screened. So when it comes to the screening event, 12 teams from group A screen on one night and then the other 12 groups screen on, uh, from group B screen on another night. And so we were scre- we were part of uh, group B. And so that was uh, Saturday for, night. Is that B for best? I'm going to biasly say, yes, B for best. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know if I mentioned it on the last episode, last time I talked about this, but because we weren't able to get our film in on time, we were not able to be nominated for any of the awards, which is very sad because there was some amazing work that went into the musical score, the cinematography, all these little elements from the, the team that were just, to me, very phenomenal for a five to seven minute film that you had to put together in two days. So seeing it on the screen was something that we were nervous about (laughs) because we were, it wasn't just us, the three of us, the 10 of us involved or whatever, watching it on a computer screen or on a, on a phone. It wasn't like, you know, getting feedback from 
from you or other friends of ours, um, it was more of a nervous thing because we were thinking, okay, well, what if what we thought was funny isn't really funny? What if what we thought was a really great moment gets the crickets in the audience? So we were nervous and I got to tell you, man, it went off really well. It was, I was incredibly proud, incredibly happy with the response of the audience moments where people were supposed to laugh. They did moments where people were, you know, supposed to be shaking their head. Like that's completely stupid. They were shaking their heads because, and the, the thing about the 48 hour film project, and I've only been doing it for a few years, but what I've noticed is that films that get recognized films that get a lot of votes for audience favorite are ones that leave a lasting impression. And typically those are ones that do two things. They make you laugh either from whatever, you know, whatever, you know, inappropriate jokes or slapstick or whatever. And they usually have a big ending. And so what we tried to do was to craft a story that one made sense because if you can't follow the story, you can't enjoy it, but also had those other two elements. And I felt like we really hit those in a way that left us with a memorable film. So there's a, there's a chance and we'll find out this next week if we got audience favorite. And if we got audience favorite, then we're guaranteed a spot in what they call the best of. So they take the, the top, I don't know how many from each group and those films then get screened again at a best of showing, which will happen in a couple of weeks. So we're hopeful. We talked to several people in the audience and you have the opportunity to vote for up to three people or three people, three teams, uh, three movies for the, the audience favorite. And from the people that we talked to, they all seem to put us on that list. So I am very, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic. And more than anything, I'm excited because once we find out all that, we'll be able to release what we're calling the director's cut of the short film, which is in the can and it's ready to be uploaded to YouTube and social media. And I'm excited about sharing it with the group and getting just, our listeners and people that are part of that Facebook group and part of our social media family access to that to see what they think. Awesome. So is it something that we'll be able to tweet out as well or only Facebook mm-hmm. group? Okay. Well, so the thing is I I'm, I'm still kind of fuzzy on the rules. Typically if we can't show it until the event is over, right? Like until the awards are actually given out, but because we're not eligible for, any of the nominations we are waiting until we get to see if we're part of the best of and whether or not we are or not, we're still going to probably post the, okay. the new one. Now what we did find out was that, uh, and this is interest to you, Aaron, because you're from Arkansas originally, the Fayetteville film fest picks a film from the 24 or from the best of maybe I can't remember, but from the teams, whether or not they put their film in on time, to show at the Fayetteville Film Fest later this year. So that's kind of cool. Oh, and that'd then, be neat. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's another theater in Little Rock called Riverdale, which has kind of, it's it was more one of the rundown theaters and kind of a just a, a not-so-popular part of Little Rock. And they've revamped it. They've made it more like a, like a draft house type thing uh, where they serve just full on like bar food and, and they show independent films. 
and they're interested in showing some of these 48 hour film project films before their features, you know, oh, that's as, a, oh, as that's so cool. So we're going to try to submit that, submit ours to, to that one. And, um, but I was just, I was incredibly proud of just <laughs> all the talent that went into it, seeing it on the screen and just hearing people respond to it in a genuine way, feeling like, um, the guy that did our music, Anthony Valley, just did a phenomenal job. And I told him afterwards, I said, I am so, so sorry that you are not going to get what I believe is at the very least a guaranteed nomination for best original score because this stuff was so good. And, um, you know, of course he was very, uh, very cool about it. He was like, it's no worries. I enjoyed doing it. And I'm like, no, you deserve your accolades. And, <laughs> but, uh, but it was great to see it and, and hear people specifically talk to him and ask him questions about what, what did you use for your music and how did you come up with these types of things? So, I was glad that he got a chance to have a little bit of that um, uh, just recognition because it was it was well deserved. Very cool. Well, I'm proud of you too, and I am excited to finally see it and get to uh, engage in talking about it with the group some sometime soon. Hopefully, we'll be talking about the uh, the festival winner or the the oh. audience pick at least. Yeah, hopefully it'll be us, but we'll see. What about you, man? What have you been up to this week? Well, um. At the risk of, I guess, letting the cat out of the bag, I'm not going to make this announcement in full just yet, but I, I am working on a new podcast project, and um, it's going to be something that's kind of hosted by Feel and Film. Uh, it's going to come out of us, but it's going to be myself and someone else doing it. And uh, and so that project, the creation of that project, has been taking up a lot of my extra time, um, as well as some of your time, which I'm, I'm very grateful for, so let me let me give you your thanks right here because um you know without you doing graphics for us i you know i don't know what we would do it's it's pretty awesome and i gotta say i think that we have stellar branding and the fact that we get it done free in-house by someone that's so talented is awesome so thank you um i'm glad to do it but yeah so i've been putting a lot of thought and effort working into that project and uh so my list of movies to watch for both projects and for uh, going to theater movies for screenings and stuff has been insane. And these, these next last week and then the next couple weeks are just, just so busy for me, but they're also a lot of fun. And I came home the other night or the other day and I had an afternoon and a couple hours off and it wasn't long enough to watch a movie. So one thing I do, Patrick, when I get home from work, usually early in the afternoon because I work kind of a weird way early in the morning to early afternoon schedule. And if I have some time between getting home and soccer practice, usually it's about a two or three hour gap. I will immediately think to myself, okay, is there something I can watch in this time frame? You know, while I check the web or catch up on Facebook type stuff. And I didn't have enough time for a full movie, but what I did have time for was some shorts. And I remembered that I'd been wanting to see the short films that Neil Blomkamp had put out through this production group he, he calls Oats Studios. These all got put out, I think, within the last month or so is when this happened. And I meant to do it. I went on my cruise, went on big vacation. I just never got around to it. So I was like, oh, you know, let me check these out. Had a friend tell me at one of the screenings that they were really good. I went in cautiously optimistic. You and I are both big fans of Neil Blomkamp. We really enjoyed all of his films. 
mm-hmm. much more than I, apparently <laughs> the the public has. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong <laughs> with them. Whatever. We like the guy. Um, and regardless of what you think of his overall film quality, he has phenomenal ideas. And so what Oat Studio really was about was getting these creators together, giving them the means, the tools to make these short films and put them out there. And they kind of in a way can serve like trailers or almost like an audition, right? So the idea would be if you put this idea out there with a short film, maybe a big studio then says, you know, that's a movie I want to make. And so Neil's thinking in this goes beyond just his own gain. It's, It's more of a artistically changing potentially the way Hollywood works, you know, instead of just giving him a script. So you send him a, a, a 20 minute short film of your concept. I mean, how much better of a decision could they make about the film that they want to fund? So I watched them all Patrick in about an hour. There's four of them. Three of them are in the 20 to 30 minute range, 20 to 25 minute range. One of them is like four minutes long. It's like truly a short um, they were incredibly interesting. The first one had Sigourney Weaver in it, was not expecting that. One of them had Charlito Copley in it playing God. That was a lot more funny than I thought it was going to be. Um, and the final film had Dakota Fanning in it, and it was phenomenal. They, I feel like the quality got better and better as they went, and they were all very good, um, but they just had some of the most crazy, crazy sci-fi horror concepts that I've seen. It's really, really well done stuff from the graphics uh, or the, the CGI for the most part was really good. The acting was, you know, surprisingly good to decent or decent to, to good uh, and great in Sigourney Weaver's case. And man, like I said, the ideas behind these films, they were just really cool. The one, the final one that they've released in this volume one set is called Zygote. And after watching it, Patrick, I tweeted out, like, let this man make his alien movie. Because I tell you, it was like playing the game Dark Space. Have you seen, have you know what the game Dark Space is? It's a, it's a sci-fi horror game set in space. You know, you're, you're a welder and you have like a welding gun that shoots nails. Do, kinda... you, do you know who you're talking to? Here? Yeah, 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 I know. Okay. <laughs> I understand <laughs> that you don't like the horror aspect of this, but it had one of the crazy grossest neatest looking alien monster things. Um, the tension in it was just cranked up to 11. I loved it. I thought it was amazing and it really sold me on the fact that Neil Blomkamp needs to keep making movies and maybe he needs some help to tweak them, but we can't let this guy's ideas not continue to be put on the screen because I want to see him, and I love what this studio is doing. Well, I'm I'm glad, and I agree. I, I don't think we should ever squelch what a guy like Blomkamp does as a director. Um, there's a lot to be said about the method that you use, or the 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 narrative structure. Or I forget the the type of storytelling, long form versus short form. And I think that his his ideas as bonkers as they are and as intriguing as they are, I think they live, and this is my opinion, I'm not going to say that they wouldn't work in a two-hour film, but I think that they work best in short form. It, he reminds me a lot, 
at least in the in the in the success that he has in his short films of Rowan Atkinson, who does the British Mr. Bean um, stuff. His stuff works. Mr. Bean works in a 10 minute to 20 minute segment and he's hilarious. But you put him in an hour and a half film and he gets a little boring and a little annoying. Not to say that Neil Blomkamp does that with his feature films. I think his ideas are really good in all of his films. In fact, I, you know, Chappie came from a short film. It was a short, I think it was a short story originally that he expanded to a feature film and I enjoyed it. I also enjoyed the short story or the short film. And I think for Blomkamp, I think his success in the short film world should lend itself to him getting more opportunities to do feature films. I don't know that it would ever, I think you're, I think you make a good point that maybe he needs somebody else to come along and help him kind of balance out and round out that narrative structure to give more depth, to give more credibility to his characters and build on that. That's why you, you have people that are better as directors than writers or people that are better writers than directors. And I, I, I think that's just the magic of having a fantastic creative team. And the cool factor is that Blomkamp may get the director credit, but he's one man that's part of a a whole slew of creative talent around him. And when you, you know, and we could say that about Chris Nolan too. I mean, he's got a fantastic group of people around him that make his films what they are. And he's not, you know, he's a primary reason we like his films, obviously, because he's at the head of the, of the pack, but you know, there's a reason why he picks certain people to be in his films to act and write and score and all that stuff. And I think Blomkamp, if he had that, I think it would elevate his films even even more. But I, I mean, I love his stuff anyway. Um, I think the issues that I would have with that I have with his feature films, I think would help get mitigated with that creative team. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I I would I'll tell you this. I would I would pay for volume two of Oats Studios. So if if they put this thing out and they were like, hey, you know. In order to help fund some of this, we need you know you to pay whatever. I don't I don't ha- I don't know the amount in my head that I would pay, but we you know, buy buy this next five five film volume for twenty bucks. Um, I would buy it. I would I would do it because I'm sold on watching all of these for free. I think it's phenomenal. And so, listeners, you can get these on YouTube. Uh, I think you can also get them on Steam. It's an interesting cost model because the films are free, and then they have quote-unquote DLC on Steam available that is behind the scenes, making of the film, featurettes, and things like that. Pretty pretty intriguing stuff. I, I do like them enough that I actually might go purchase those uh, just to check them out. I mean, they're like, you know, a buck ninety-nine type cost levels, and even just to throw them some money to help support what they're doing because I think it's really fantastic. So I, I highly recommend if you are into sci-fi horror and this is this has got some horror to it uh you know check these out very cool man well are you ready to get into our main review i am i've been so excited about this all week and ready to mm-hmm. talk about it uh, and nervous and ang- i mean anxious just all kinds of different feelings going through me because of our mutual adoration for chris nolan and mm-hmm. The potential for a letdown is there for completely heightened uh, for both of us. So I, I know I'm kind of leading you there, but I don't really know where you've landed on this since you've seen it. Yeah. And I'm curious. So would you mind telling us all, I guess? I I guess let's start there. What were you thinking this was going to be? And then how did you react? 
Well, I didn't know what it was going to be because every Chris Nolan film that we've seen has not been a period piece of any kind. It's usually been something that, well, I think, I mean, obviously the, the prestige was and, but the prestige was like, this was this was built to be based on true events. It was a historical narrative that, right. And so when, when it was first introduced, I, I didn't know what Dunkirk was. So when I saw Dunkirk pop up as the next Chris Nolan film, I was like, oh, great, another, you know, mind-bending something. Maybe it'll take place, you know, beyond space. And the f- <laughs> I didn't know what it was. And then I, I saw the trailer for it, the initial teaser, and I was like, okay, so maybe he's going to be a mind-bending war film. And then I actually read that Dunkirk was an actual event that took place in history. And I was going, okay, that's really interesting. So as we got closer to the release, I don't know if it was, um, I don't, I don't know if I was nervous, but I was apprehensive because this was one of the more obvious kind of looks that I was going, okay, my expectations will are going to be changed because he's never done this before. He's never done a historical movie, a movie based on historical events. So are we going to get a twist on this movie? Are we going to get some weird thing that's going to happen in this movie? Is he going to take some creative liberty or is this going to be his attempt at the next Hacksaw Ridge or Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers? And so I wasn't really sure going into it. Um, so my expectations were sort of confused <laughs> at, <laughs> at best. And then when I walked out of the theater, my emotions and reactions were just that. They were confused. They were disoriented. I thought to myself, what did I just watch? Um, did did what, what just happened here? Um, and why was that so short? Um, <laughs> so I, I really, as a, as an audience member just struggled with it. I struggled with walking out of the theater, feeling that way, just having that kind of reaction because I didn't know if I really, really liked it or I was really, really pissed off <laughs> because it just didn't, I didn't have that. Yeah. Oh, and now it's done. And I feel this way. I, I didn't have that concluding that, that finishing, okay, like I did with Amazing Spider-Man or or Spider-Man or any of these movies that we've seen over the last several weeks in the theater. And so I was a, I was a bit afraid and I was going, uh, okay, uh, did you, did you, did you lose me, Chris? Are you, are you, are you now like five for six or, you know, you're no longer batting a thousand. But over the course of the weekend, I began to think about it. And of course I had a little help from the internet and the ideas that were in my head that I knew I wanted to talk about became a lot more solid as the weekend went on. And I came back to thinking about it as I was putting my notes in for the episode tonight. And I said, you know, I need to see it again. Because that was a big question for me. You know, War for the Planet of the Apes, when I know something is a five-star movie for me, it's that I want to immediately walk back into the theater and watch it again. That's the way it was for Sing Street. That's the way it was for War. And this one was not that way. And because it was so disorienting, I I didn't know really how to 
respond to it. And then over the course of the next 48 hours, I began to say, you know what, there's, there are parts of it I really want to see again. And I want to see if that theme that I'm thinking about, that idea that I'm picking up on, was it in the beginning or was it here? Or was it in this part? And I began to see that as, ah, Chris Nolan's got me. <laughs> He's got me now. Yep. And so I had a better vibe after sleeping on it for a couple of days. And um, if I had a concluding statement, I would say that this movie was really, really good for me. Good. That's I, I'm glad. I think that will make me a lot happier about our conversation. Um, <laughs> good. <laughs> um, I, I aim to please, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> so it was very similar for me. Well, kind of. It's I say similar in a different way if that makes sense, similar in a different way. So when I walked out of it, I was also a bit disoriented. Um, the main thing that I felt was a sense of relief. I don't think I have gone through a film experience that was that tense that I can remember. I can't call back to the last theater experience that was like that for me. Now, Sometimes revisiting a film like Alien uh, can provide that sort of tension, and that was the movie that I compared this to right off the bat was an Alien, and the, that that building sense of dread where you keep thinking you're going to get around the corner and things will be okay, and then something just keeps going wrong, and you have it building, 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 and that, that sense of fear the unknown, and in this case, I would say the unknown is just the unknown of the potential of not actually surviving. So it's the fear of death. Um, and I didn't feel like I breathed for the hour and a half. I am so glad that this movie was not longer. I 100% understood the choice to keep it short because I feel like it was so intense and so like heavy on you that to put you through that for over two hours would just be too much. Uh, I don't know that people would want to deal with that because what this movie did is from, from the moment we start, well, maybe not the moment we start, but after the first, what, 10 minutes or so, maybe it is a ride. Like it just goes at that point. So I left it and the similar part to you of the disorientation, I didn't really know where I stood on it either. And I actually had to come home and think about it and try to put into words what I was feeling. Um, I didn't have a lot of conversation right after the movie. I didn't have a lot to say. Uh, my buddy and I walked out of it, and it was just kind of like looking at each other blankly and <laughs> going, I, I don't know. We, neither one of us really knew what we felt about it, and we both come to absolutely love it. And feel like it was incredible and want and that same feeling that you have, that want to go back and see it, want to experience it again and, and go through that. I didn't immediately coming out of the theater, just like you. I, I was like, man, I don't I don't know if I ever want to go through that again. Um, for me, the expectation also very, very similar. Uh, I didn't know what we were going to get from a Christopher Nolan war film. I don't think anybody did. I didn't know what Dunkirk was until this movie popped up. I also thought when it first came out, when I first heard the title of it released, I thought he was making something up and just like creating his own war movie with its own word. I didn't know that Dunkirk was a place. Had to learn some of that history. 
and uh and so i i kind of kept wondering what the twist was going to be and what the hook where the nolan the quote-unquote nolan aspect was going to come into this film and it happened pretty quickly and i think that was a good thing for me because once we get the three screen texts that show us this is you know day one the mole or the mole one week uh whatever the other two were um one was like an hour and one was a day i think the boats were a day and the planes were an hour once we got those i realized okay we're gonna get shifting narrative of time here that's gonna be the nolan aspect (laughs) that i that i came to i come to expect something weird um and so i was able to settle in and um, I, I came out of it, man, and I, I think over the week it's been since I've seen it, I have found myself thinking about it a lot, and it just has just rocketed up my favorite war movie list because of the way it's done. So I, I really enjoy it. So when you, you, you said war movie several times, and one of, the, one of the comments that we've seen in articles is, is this a war film? And I think even Christopher Nolan has said it's not a war film, it's a film about survival. Yep. And would you agree with that statement? I mean, obviously Chris Nolan says it is, so I mean, if you don't agree with the director, you're probably not getting it, I guess. I would agree that it is a it is a movie about survival, and I would I would I kind of made this joke in the intro, and when I say, is it a war film? Is it a survival film? Is it a horror yeah. film? Yeah. I actually think it's all three, and I think mm-hmm. that I, I know why. He would say that because he's trying not to have expectations put on it that are equated to the traditional war film. The yeah. closest war film that there is to this one really is probably The Thin Red Line in a lot of ways, which is Terrence Malick's war movie, and it is completely different than anything you'll see. It's so much more heady and philosophical mm-hmm. and thoughtful. And not that this one is, but it's just it's it's a lot closer to that than it is like Saving Private Ryan. And yeah. so I think that was Nolan's intention, but to say it's not a war movie is is incorrect. It is a war movie, right? Because of the fact that it takes place in a historical <laughs> in a war, that, in a <laughs> war, right? But I think what I think the the difference that he's getting at is that he's using the war aspect of it as a platform, correct? As opposed to a Saving Private Ryan or uh, Glory or Gettysburg, things like that, where you're you're sitting back you're not looking at events after event after event. You're in the thick of something. And I think that's, this is where I think our reaction to the film is where Nolan's success exists. At least, again, we're very subjective when we say this because we're not in his head. We're not sitting down having coffee with him, unfortunately, to find out if this is what his intent was. But we walked out of the film feeling very disoriented. And I think he wants that. I think he wants disorientation because that's what most of these characters that we run into these this ensemble of various people that we that we get to kind of poke into their lives for for two hours that occur over a course of an hour or a day or a week uh, they were disoriented too in their own particular way because they were trying to survive and in some ways you know we're trying to i was trying to survive this movie because i was trying to get my head around what was happening you know, with the shifting narrative, it was hard for me to grasp it. I wasn't quite in there with what was going on. It was because it wasn't straightforward. I didn't know what to expect. Um, I was just trying to survive at some point. And then by the time the end got to me, I was like, okay, I found something that I can hold on to. <laughs> there's a, there's a train it's leaving. And I, you know, it's, it, 
I, I know what's happening there. That that's the end of something. Um, but yeah, I, I think that I think that he puts that Nolan touch in a purposeful way to get us to feel what we felt leaving the theater, which is that disorientation and that discomfort. I would say more discomfort than anything else because of the fact that we couldn't say, Oh, I really enjoyed that. Or man, that was terrible. Or, you know, we (laughs) were going, what did we just see? And, and I think that's, I'd like to believe that's what he wanted us to, at least in part wanted us to feel. I I would have to agree. I I mean, I think there are even my criticisms of the film, right? My one main criticism is that at times the sound, which is completely just incredible in this movie, as far as the loudness of it, the impact Mm -hmm. of it um, on your body (laughs) to kind of draw it. I mean, it is immersive, but one of my criticisms was that sometimes that overpowered the dialogue. And I had to really strain to understand, or I couldn't understand because of accents and the way things were being said in the midst of the soundtrack. In when I walked out of the film, that was one of those things that I was like, uh, uh, did I like that? Did I, you know, that bothered me a little bit. Hindsight, I honestly believe that's a choice. I, I don't think that that was done by accident. I don't think that they just accidentally got the sound mix too high. They didn't know what they were doing. Oh, they oh, whoops. Sorry, you couldn't hear the dialogue. Our bad. No, I think that it was intentional. I think that not having those pieces of the puzzle, as it were, is exactly what enhanced the overall experience for me when I was thinking about it later because I felt more like I had been in that moment with the soldiers and mm-hmm. with those characters, like you said. It is yeah. all about the micro view of this story. It is not a macro level war film. It is not Patrick. We have, do you realize this? We never saw the Germans like the mo. you, you never, you never see them come marching in. No, you, I mean, there's, there's a couple scenes of like in the past, like way off in the distance type. Well, the, yeah, the only time is, is Tom Hardy's character at the very end after he's burning the, Right. The plane. But that's the only time we ever get. And we only get their helmets. We only know they're Germans because of the shape of their helmets. Like, that's what I picked up on. But right. yeah, you're right. But they the, were. Ne- yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. They're, the ominousness of their presence was through through text on the screen was told to us at the beginning. But that's all we ever got. We filled in the gaps. You know, we heard gunshots. <laughs> we saw bullet holes in boats. But we never saw human German soldiers. We saw, and and I think this is where the power of the film lives, and is in this, you know, going back to Inception, the power of an idea. And I think what Nolan does here is he plants an idea in our head at the very beginning through a small amount of text, and then takes us for a ride for the next hour and forty-five minutes to say, I'm not going to tell you a story. I'm going to I'm going to allow you to experience a story. Yes, that's a great way to put it. He puts us in the center of the conflict. Yes. Right there in it, experienced story. I love that phrasing. That is exactly what it feels like. And I think that's why we come out of it unsure. That's not mm-hmm. you know, part of me kind of was like, "Huh, there's a lot of people clapping. I kind of want to like standing o this film because it was technically amazing. It was marvelous, but mm-hmm. man, 
I don't know that I liked this experience. <laughs> Again, it's that feeling because should you like that experience? Well, no, probably not. That's the point. Do you think that they liked that experience either? No, they did not. It was miserable. It was scary. Mm-hmm. And so that idea, you know, if I had to peg one idea for this movie, I mean, it, it hinges on fear. It, it really does. It is a story about being scared and and how men act in those moments. Um, and you want to talk about realistic. I didn't for one second um, fail to buy the actions that were taken in this movie, whether it was pinning responsibility on others, trying to save yourself at the cost of others, you know, trying to sneak on the ship to save your own skin, uh, trying to make someone else go up the ladder so that they'd get shot and not you. Even mm. when that person was your so-called buddy, just a couple seconds late earlier. Um, mm-hmm. there, there were so many moments in this movie that I felt, yep. Oh, yep. Yep. That's exactly. Yep. That's how people would react. And I just, I cannot fathom going through this type of situation. Um, yeah, uh, I couldn't either. And I think what he does really well is he creates a palette of various choices of ways in which people respond to that fear. You know, if you, if you were going to create a fictional story, you're going to want to find that central character that maybe starts out being fearful, but then overcomes that fear by doing something amazing, the hero's quest, that kind of thing. And in a war film, you, you get this idea of we're going to overcome the odds and we're going to come out triumphant. And we don't get that here. I mean, we get people making what we, what you mentioned, real choices, choices that you and I would make. But we also get this wide array of various choices based on that fear. And I don't know if, I mean, I guess we could probably say that some of them were heroic, some of them weren't, but they were all very visceral. They were all very emotionally connective because... And I didn't, I didn't know that you could experience the multiple ways in which people, one person, multiple people respond to the situation at bay. I mean, there was a lot going on and because of what was going on, I saw the handful of characters that we were introduced to respond in different ways, but they were all being triggered by that same thing, that fear or that need to survive. And sometimes they didn't feel like they could. Sometimes they felt like they, that was what gave them the strength to go on was just to survive. And I love the muddiness of that. There wasn't one central, it was, it was an, it, it was an exploration of an idea, not necessarily a, a preaching of it was, it was really, or an analysis. It was just that exploration. It was like, what if, what if we looked into that? the the mind of this person what if we looked at this person i don't know the historical accuracy of the things that we saw so i can't speak to that but i can say that because we got so many different vantage points the disorientation helped us to kind of craft at least it helped me craft this idea that fear can cause you to do a wide array of things and that morality can become very blurred (laughs) and that's definitely a chris nolan idea and um, it, it was it was connective because I know that I could have responded in any one of those dozen ways that we saw people react to that to that fear. Yeah, 
concur. And I, I, you know, I love it because I love that there's no superhero here. There's no one or two overarching guys that are going to save the day. You know, I mean, does Tom Hardy's character do that in, in some ways? Yeah. He's probably the, the closest, but he doesn't do so by any unrealistic manner, right? He just does his job and in doing so ends up saving the day. And I, I think that that is a strength of this is that it, it is like a snapshot. It's a snapshot of what was going on in three different types of places at three different times, kind of three different pieces of the same puzzle again to use that word and i think it's pretty incredible that nolan trusts us to put those pieces together and some people are not going to like this movie because they don't want to do that work and that's fine that's fine it doesn't have to be a movie for everybody and i don't look down on anyone that doesn't want to have to do that work that wants to go to the movies and just see their story told in a straightforward manner where it's lined out very nicely for them this one requires you to put in some effort and, and get into it with the characters. Now, he assists you. I think that, you know, he used light and darkness really well to transition between scenes. And by the end, I was picking up on the cues. I'll admit, first third of the movie, I had some issues trying to figure out what was going on with the timeline. And I, that's one reason I can't wait to see it again. Because I'll know, right? I'll understand the timelines better. And I'll be able, like you said, to really focus in on those things and see, oh, okay, was that doing what I thought it was? In hindsight, um, one other thing I wanted to say, you mentioned you don't know about the historical accuracy. I read an article today about a 97-year-old man uh, who is a Dunkirk survivor who was in uh, one of the screenings for this at a movie premiere. And he had said that it was incredibly accurate. Um, he felt that it captured exactly what it was like for them on that beach. And so that doesn't surprise me. Um, his quote actually is, I never thought I would see that again. It was just like I was there again. If that isn't like chilling to you, you know, I mean, this is a man that lived through this awful, awful event. I mean, it's awful for part of it. And then it's, you know, miraculous and wonderful, Mm -hmm. but I mean, that's, that's a stamp of approval for historical accuracy. If I've seen one. Right. And, but what you said was really interesting because his quote was based on his experience that the experience of watching the film was historically accurate. Not that the number of people got off the beach, not that this many boats came to rescue them. It wasn't an an event accuracy that I think he was pointing to. It was an emotional accuracy. It says something. I mean, because if you, I don't know if you did a film about Vietnam or World War II or the Korean, I mean, whatever. A war film is typically driven by events, and Dunkirk is one event. And it could have been very easy for a director to say, you know what, I'm going to focus on all of these boats that have come to take care of these people. Because that, in and of itself, is a huge thing. I mean, that's a huge thing to to want to write a story about all these civilian ships that came to rescue these soldiers and that was really just the kind of the the base layer for the film it was like 
that's what happened. But Nolan was like, I'm not going to focus on that, or at least not the majority. I'm going to let that be part of the narrative. And that was a bold move because if I'm a director, I'm going to be like, that's a great story to tell. Let's tell that story. But Nolan was like, no, I want to tell a different one. I want to get in the minds of these guys and I want to find out and try to evoke that emotion on screen in a way that connects my audience to the people, not necessarily give, give them a hooray moment for the, the rescue, which is to me one of the downfalls of the film because the, the end result, the end of the film didn't really pay itself off for me. I kind of wish we would have been left with a, a non like with, without the speech being thing because it, to, it sort of changed the tone for me. It felt then like a war film, like a true, like, oh, and then everybody got rescued and it was great. And I mean, I know it was, it was a great way to wrap it up, but for me, what he was doing throughout the film felt a little inconsistent near the end there for me. Um, I, I liked that, that, that disorientation. And then we kind of get that conclusion wrap up. Um, it, it kind of soured it for me a little bit, not enough to, turn me off by any means but it just felt different uh to a point of at least a different tone from the rest of the film you know yeah i think i can i can agree with that there there are a couple moments at or toward the end that i guess i treat as my own ending in a way you know tom hardy's arc wrapping up is i mean that's powerful i i don't i don't know for me that was a an incredibly powerful moment and it came on to me unexpectedly uh, because we're so used to seeing films where I, I hesitate to say this, but we are sometimes emotionally manipulated through the use of sound and, and audio and song and, and the way in which characters act. We are really being led to down a path to where we need you to feel this emotion, which Christopher Nolan does the same thing. We need you to feel fear, right? But I never, felt intense care about Hardy's character during the movie. Uh, if that makes sense. And maybe that's just me, but I just didn't. But by the end, when his plane has made its final lap and can no longer turn and he is just sailing away, sailing away from safety, right? Not sailing, but flying. And, Everything about the way the scene plays out, it's not, again, it's not overly emotional. We see him go through the steps of opening his cockpit and thinking through, should I or should I not parachute out? Is it safer to do this or is it safer to land? And then he lands and without any emotional fanfare, he does what the protocol says to do and he lights the plane on fire and he waits. He just waits. And we don't get close-ups of his face looking completely miserable like oh no i'm waiting for the worst to come you know it's it's not manipulative he just does his thing and then we see and then we see what happens and we see him get captured we know it's coming and it's it's done Mm -hmm. and then there's another scene on the train where one of the guys uh, one of the boys that the privates is i forget the exact way the conversation goes down but um i think it's i think it's actually when he's talking to the blind guy and he says something about why are you thanking me? Why are you telling me you're proud of me? Why did I? What did I? I was succeeded, and all they did so much. He's like, all I did was survive. And the guy mm-hmm. says, it's enough. 
That's yeah. enough, right? Yeah. That was another moment when I was just like gut punched. Like, okay, yeah, yeah. So I kind of agree with you. I don't necessarily love the nicer bow in this one, uh-huh. but there were a couple moments towards and near the very end that I really did latch onto enough. Yeah. I think the, the word that I'm thinking of is kind of an opposite viewpoint of the manipulation is that all the emotional connections that I had felt very authentic. Hmm. I didn't feel like I was being told to feel a certain way. I felt like my emotion came out of a result of the actions of one person towards another or one person toward a situation. Um, and particularly I kind of grinned a little bit when Tom Hardy's character kind of, he slides his cockpit door open as he's, you know, looking for a place like, should I parachute? As if he's like rolling down the window to look outside. I thought that was kind of funny. I'm going, yeah, we can't do that these days in our F-15s and F, you know, the, the fighter pilot, or these fighter jets. But yeah, I, I think the power of the film is that not, is that one person, not one person did something that was, um, they were just doing their job and they were following orders. And I, I love the fact that not one character stood out mm-hmm. because that's something that's very, very risky to do in a film is to give weight to a group of people. But what's interesting about that is that every, most movies that I see that are centered around an ensemble cast are usually strengthened by dialogue like really great writing. Um, I think on the short form storytelling with shows like the West wing, it's an ensemble cast, but that's all driven by great dialogue, you know, written by the great screenwriter, Aaron Sorkin. And the interesting thing about this, again, I think this whole movie is just a big giant risk that Chris Nolan took in the way in which he approached it. Because I want to say maybe with the exception of the speech at the end, maybe there's 30 lines of dialogue or 30 minutes of dialogue total. Like if you were to add up all the dialogue total, it would equal maybe 30 to 40 minutes. Maybe. And, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and then, and then, but even what you mentioned earlier, if you want to talk about dialogue, dialogue has to be understandable to be effective. And so then it takes it down even more. So maybe about 15 minutes of that dialogue was remotely understandable Mm -hmm. and i think that it's such a a bold thing to do because you're now having to rely on action you're now having to rely on sound you're now having to rely on cinematography and all these other elements that go into making a film what it is in order to tell your story and that's at the end of the day i'm thinking about this movie and i'm going did it tell an effective story after a couple of days of thinking about it I have to say, yes, it did. Because I'm thinking about things about the story that I feel like I'm supposed to. I'm not just thinking about plot point A, plot point B, plot point C, which is, you know, coincidentally what you should have in a narrative. You should have a you should have a beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. And we had that, but we had it in such an ambiguous way that I think that's what turns people off, is it wasn't straightforward. We didn't have a first act, second act, third act that were so obvious. And I know that for me, leaving the theater, that was part of my struggle was, what did I just see? Did I, I couldn't put it all together, but having to be able to do that on my own and kind of work through it, I think makes the film that much more important and powerful and meaningful to me. 
it did it did for me as well i mean it is it is certainly a matter of the art and the technical brilliance of this film are really just kind of unmistakable to me they're 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 almost not up for debate you know it is the images the sound the whole scale of the film everything feels so immersive i mean you can almost like smell the salt spray he <laughs> feels like um I wouldn't be surprised if your brain tricked you into that. And so I didn't feel like I needed that human anchor. And for me, I was able to accept the collectiveness of all of them as that one whole. So yeah, I uh, I think I I think I have to agree with that. If I did have an anchor, Patrick, it might have been Michael Caine. <laughs> so Michael Michael Caine, there it is. Michael Caine. So I didn't want to get through the episode without having that happen. Did you notice him? I didn't. When I saw that in your notes, I was like, "What did so, I?" So I did, and it was right around, It was right at the beginning, at the, at the beginning of the movie. Um, we first met Tom Hardy's character, and he's flying down with uh, his other his other pilot, and. Um, I hear him on the radio and I was like, I I remember twisting my head, like trying to hear better. Like, is that, is that Michael Caine? I didn't know Michael Caine was going to be in this. Oh, he found (laughs) a way. He found a way. And then I realized that he never came back. And so one of the first things I looked up when I got home was where's Michael Caine in his cast. And sure enough, (laughs) there he is. RAF radio operator. Um, So I thought that was fantastic. What about, Mm -hmm. um, speaking of those technical aspects, I'm curious, what do you think of the score? Because we're big uh, Zimmer, we're big Zimmer fans. We yes. we admittedly love the Zimmer. I'd like I'd like to I'd like to preface this by telling you a quick story. Okay. Last last night uh, before the screening, we had uh, of the forty eight. We had um, my my uh, editor Scooter and then Anthony, our composer. Uh, we all went out to dinner and we were talking about Dunkirk. Now neither of them have seen the film, but like you. Uh, Anthony's big on listening to the scores to films before he actually sees them. Mm-hmm. Um, at least I know that's something you've been doing recently. And I said, well, so what did you think? He goes, I didn't like it. And, <laughs> and here's a guy who's, you know, he's, you know, if you want to talk about film scores, he's one of the guys you talk about it with. And I said, that doesn't surprise me. To me, what Zimmer does is something completely unique in film in that, in a similar way, I, now I'm, yeah, I would say unique, and now I'm going to make a comparison, so that's going to be really funny. But what he does uniquely is that he allows the music to become part of the sound design. Like the, there were times when his music, and I use that in quotes, became more like sound effects, and it was, it was just like mean and and just really just engrossing. I mean, the, all these w- words were coming into my head, like oh. This this feels uncomfortable to me. It wasn't music to me. It was a it was a score that accented the scenes that were being played out. You know, if there there was no theme song here, obviously, there was. It, it it's as if he said, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to intensify this moment, not by manipulating you with music, but by amplifying the emotion with sound, and by using notes, which he does. So the music becomes a supporting actor in this, becomes part of that ensemble cast. And I was thinking a lot about Baby Driver 
and that's what Edgar Wright attempts to do. He uses music to help amplify the, the scenes, to mm. help bring a, a better narrative to the story. What, what Zimmer does, though, is he does it on the instrumental side, and he uses instruments to help amplify it. He's almost like a Foley artist at this point, where he's creating sound that's going to intensify an emotional aspect without necessarily being a tune. And so this is a, one of the few films that I believe you cannot enjoy the score without having the film right behind it. I don't think you can enjoy the score on its own, which you could see as sad or maybe that makes it less of a, a good score. But to me, I think it makes it more of a niche score, more specific to the film. I'd like to see more composers do this. Um, as much as I love listening to film scores, I love seeing how film scores are intertwined into, into the, the visuals to help amplify that beyond just creating tunes. So I thought it was fantastic. Interesting. I, when you first started talking, I, I thought you were thought you didn't like it. <laughs> um, so it's cool to see you kind of talk your way from what well, I thought. I, that... you know, I didn't at first. I was like, this is weird. And then again, it, it once it started coming together, it made sense. And I really fell in love with it. Well, I'm going to say if I have another not so love of for the film, it's it's the score because because (laughs) this is a slippery slope it is phenomenal and it is exactly what this movie needed it conveys this movie perfectly the emotion in this film the lack of a rousing single track or two that i immediately want to go home and start playing in my car is intentional and it Mm -hmm. is exactly the point because if we had that that is driving that emotion more than what we're seeing on the screen. It's in a different way. So I think of I think to the two tracks that I absolutely love the most, which is I think one called Cornfield Chase in uh, Interstellar and then Time uh, in Inception. Those two tracks, I, I can listen to them and I don't need to see anything about. I don't even need to see images on the screen. I, I am in the moment and I have an emotional reaction to those two tracks the one that they released early for dunkirk is called supermarine and it's very very good but it's not something that i feel like i want to go listen to for that emotional pleasure and i i again so i'm i'm torn in saying that you know i didn't get the zimmer soundtrack that i want to go spam and listen to but i got the zimmer sim track that zimmer soundtrack that comp- perfectly accented this film Absolutely. So in that in that regard, I mean, it's an A plus. <laughs> yeah, but I'm also a, a little disappointed because part of me would have loved a new Zimmer score. Sure. To to add to my you know collection of of things that I'm going to listen to on a repeated basis. Oh, absolutely. He's he is my favorite, uh, and if if not my favorite, then top three. And it's a little bittersweet because if you ask me, did you love the score? Absolutely. Are you going to buy it? No. No. Right. Exactly. Because of the fact that it's not, you can't listen to it. You have to experience it. Again, going back to what I think Nolan is doing here, you can't, you're not just watching a story, you're experiencing it. And I think Zimmer's like, I can get on that gravy train too from a, from a sound standpoint. Yeah. And I think he did so successfully. I do too. And it, it, it does solidify for me. So I, I've been thinking about this ever since I saw Spider-Man, how, 
Michael Giacchino has been rising the ranks for me. The Spider-Man suite, which is the kind of the main theme, really, of this new Spider-Man film, I have not been able to stop that track from being in my head, humming it for three, four weeks now. Um, so I was waiting and anxiously to see, was Zimmer going to give me a track that could kind of, you know, supplant that for the rest of the year, but I don't think it's going to happen. So I think, I think Giacchino may, may be taking that crown and with his work in homecoming and then war back to back, uh, mm-hmm. he, he is definitely in my top three now. So I, I got to yeah. have him. He's up there. He's like, he's getting close, uh, but yeah. So the sound was great. Anything else? I think there's one more question. I think we should kind of, I want to ask you okay, uh, before we wrap this up and talk about our connecting points. And that is, we often use the descriptive language of a Christopher Nolan movie. And there are a few other directors that this is, their styles are so distinctive. You can do this, a Hitchcock film, Mm -hmm. uh, a Kubrick film. They're, so iconically connected to that type of movie. What is a Christopher Nolan movie to you? Or or is there, can you answer that? <laughs> um, up until Dunkirk, I could totally answer that. <laughs> I, I think that, I think it, it, up until Dunkirk, it was defined roughly as a movie that makes you think and has twists and turns and leaves you asking more questions. And I think with Dunkirk, it does all those things, but it supplants it in a historical setting that causes you to give you. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I, this didn't feel like a Chris Nolan movie until I thought about it, and then it did. <laughs> and I think for me, a Chris Nolan film is one that allows you to want to revisit a film not because it's got a cool little twist but because it offers something that you need to see more than once you need to experience more than once to really appreciate whether you want to call it a masterpiece or a five-star film that those are those are other categories that i think exist on a different in a different discussion but in terms of it being a film that compels you to watch it again because you want to understand more about the message that's being conveyed because it feels important to you. I think that's what makes a Christopher Nolan film, um, a Chris Nolan film now where it kind of, where that idea kind of, that's where I think the idea lives for the most part, but where I think the Chris Nolan aspect dies is that we don't get that weird kind of mind bendy, <laughs> off the wall idea like we do in Memento or Inception or Interstellar. Um, I also think apparently Dunkirk, uh, you know, Christopher Nolan films are only one word if they're going to be, you know, successful. <laughs> but oh, I get, you know, prestige. Don't use the, you know. So it's <laughs> all all Chris Nolan films apparently only are like one one word at the most two. That's just my little in joke there. But I think for the most part, this is a Chris Nolan film. I think what makes it less obvious is the fact that it's a it's a war film that it takes place in actuality it's a real thing whereas all of the rest of his films tend to be um fiction so i think that's kind of where it broke for me but he brought it back with the the compellingness of it so yes i would say this is a chris nolan film to me (laughs) i i totally i don't know what you just said i i got lost i was counting there at the end because you're right so 
the reason the Dark Knight Rises failed is because <laughs> it has three words. I, I you said some really good stuff. I'm sure. I'm sorry, listeners. I hope you guys were listening to him. I was counting. So he's right. This is mind blowing. So all he had to do was retitle <laughs> the Dark Knight Rises as Batman's right with an apostrophe s batman's back and then it had been a hit and we'd have been fine and we would be like 11 for 11 instead of 10 for 11 this is fascinating patrick so go back what did you say did you think what was a christopher I'm, no i'm kidding i'm, I'm, I'm not joking. gonna do that um <laughs> rewind it after we record and you can hear it <laughs> so to answer that same question for myself because it wouldn't be i, I kind of want to bail on it and just leave you there to do it alone but i will join the fight and uh, i'm gonna and, go count i'm gonna go count <laughs> words myself while you're doing that christopher nolan <laughs> equals one thing patrick and that is masterpiece okay masterpiece now um i do <laughs> sorry <laughs> I do feel that many of his films are masterpieces to me, um, personally. So I have I have a, a a lot of love for this director. But when we come to defining his films and their genre and, and the idea of what a Nolan movie is, I think they're one of two things. I think we're starting to see kind of two different real concepts for his movies. One is what you specifically talked about quite a bit in the the idea the kind of twisty, mm-hmm. mind-bending, something something weird and neat and fascinating and different is happening, going on, that we need to learn about or, or we're exploring this. It's almost like sci-fi, right? Like good sci-fi ideas do that. The other is narrative structure. Memento, it's all about playing with narrative structure. Dunkirk, some would say it doesn't need to, I liked it because it added to the disorientation like we talked about. We both agreed on that. But that's a narrative structure choice, a difference in narrative structure. Um, the Dark Knight is kind of in that middle ground. I don't know where I would put that. Pro- maybe a little bit with narrative structure, but it's not really playing with it as much. Um, it doesn't really have a specific unique sci-fi type concept either to it. So it's, it's a little bit of a – I guess if we pull the trilogy out – as a comic book movie set, those are kind of unique, but the rest of them all do this. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, in a way, insomnia has unique narrative structure to it, not because it's messing with forward and backward in time, but it's messing with the narrative in terms of coherence, um, and how you perceive things because of the way that the, the, the day and the night, or the, sorry, I guess the endless day is, is taking place. So, those are the two things that I look for. And I think that in that regard, it definitely falls in there. Like you said, I think it's a Nolan film. Um, and another thing is that he trusts, he trusts his audience, man. Um, and he is okay. If you don't love it, he doesn't make movies to please a crowd. He makes movies that he believes will tell a story in an impactful way. And the people that are going to get it, get it. And he's fine with that. He doesn't alter his style. <laughs> he is very clear now. He is not going to change who he is just to sell more tickets. And I love that because there aren't a lot of directors out there making blockbusters that feel like indies. Um, and for me, that's kind of where he stands. Good stuff, man. I would agree on a lot of that for sure. Well, let's go ahead and move into our connecting points since I think we can definitely say that we got a visceral reaction from this, but 
with all the jumping around and different things going on, was there one moment for you that stood out as your connecting point? There was actually, and there were several that I probably could have chosen. Um, it's the same with most films or a lot of films, the good ones. Um, I mentioned, you know, the Tom Hardy scene, very, very powerful, uh, but not quite the one that got me the most. The one that brought me to tears for the first time in the film um, and and really, I would say kind of wrecked me, <laughs> honestly, um, was there's a moment on the Moonstone, and that is Mr. Dawson's boat. When the soldiers that are covered in oil are being rescued. George has been injured by Cillian Murphy's character, which is only credited as the shivering soldier. So he doesn't have a name, but he's the, the pilot that is rescued and he has kind of lashed out in his own handling of his situ the situation. He, he's pushed George and George has fallen down the ladder and banged his head. Right. And he's hurt. So we're, we're pulling on the soldiers onto the boat and they start loading in down where George is laying down on a cot. And Peter, the son of Mr. Dawson says, be careful, tells him to be careful. Cause George is down there. And one of the soldier kind of looks up at him and just says, he's dead. Like he's, he's gone. Um, and Peter just says, then be careful with him. <laughs> Uh, just a very powerful response. And you see the soldier gently, two or three of them, gently move George to the side of the the area, the room, or the, the hold. And then they take a blanket and they cover him very respectfully. And then right after that, Cillian Murphy's character comes to the top of the stairs and says, is he going to be okay? Asking about George which is referring back to the fact that he had asked this. It reminded me because he earlier in the film, he asks the same thing after initially pushing him down the stairs. He says, is he going to be okay? And at that moment, Peter's response is no and snaps at him right in anger. But this time he asks the same thing. Peter pauses and he says, yes. Sorry. And it cuts over and then we get to Mr. Dawson, Peter's dad, and he just silently nods his approval. And for me, man, it, even just like reliving it in my, as I redescribe it, like it encaps it encapsulated every bit of the humanity and the hopefulness, the, the goodness of the people that were coming on these ships to make this rescue in the first place. This scene is not necessarily something that really happened, but there are so many ways that this could have taken place. And I thought that for all of them to navigate the way that they were handling the fear, um, they were all in this very brittle state, but they, they made their way around it very careful, carefully and, and very courageously, honestly. And so it was just an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly powerful moment for me. All of the mo like everything that happens in that entire sequence, 
I thought was amazing because the responses from Peter, the responses from the soldiers to, to gently move him. I mean, you think about these things in context. These guys have just gone through absolute hell. They've been floating in water that is on fire. They have been rescued and pulled onto this boat literally maybe 60 seconds to, to 180 seconds before this. Watched their friends burn in the water next to them. And they're, they're able to pause for five seconds, gently move him to the side, and put a blanket over him out of respect because he's died. He's died. And, um, and then Peter, you know, like responding to, to Cillian Murphy's character by saying, yes, he's going to be okay. Understanding how brittle he was in that state, how much, how much responsibility he felt, right? For George dying in the first place by the, even though it was an accident. Um, he, there's a lot of self-sacrifice that went on in that scene. And that's just, just self-sacrifice is one of the things that I will always, always connect with in a film the most. So I'm going to stop talking about it because I'm starting to get emotional and move it on to you. All right. Well, just as a, as a quick note, I think that, that, that one line that he's going to be okay, I thought was, was brilliant. I did not expect that. So, uh, kudos to you is great. That was a great scene. And, um, it's one of many that, that I pegged as being just a visceral moment. My whole experience though was, it was really informed by two moments and, and I feel okay giving these two moments because, you know, we were jumping around so much that I feel like I'm not cheating when I have two particular connecting points technically. But the first was, if I remember correctly, it was a moment on the beach when we see this unknown soldier just walking into the water on the way to just basically killing himself. Like it was just, there was no dramatic music to it. I mean, he was just being watched and he goes into the water and we assume that he's just going to kill himself. Cause what's he doing? You know, he's not going towards a ship. It's just him by himself. And then there's a scene a couple of moments later where this group of soldiers bunks, they, they find this ship that's on shore. It's been kind of washed ashore and they huddle down in it. And later on, uh, a couple of moments after that, they're getting shot at by, I guess they consider it German target practice. And so the, the, the tide comes in, the water starts coming into the boat and all chaos ensues. And I don't remember the exact line of dialogue, but I think it was something where, one of the soldiers is saying, survival is not a choice. And those two moments help me understand what I believe is the story that Nolan is trying to tell, and that's that conflict that exists in a person when it comes to surviving. You know, in one moment we see that it actually is a choice because this person chooses to kill himself. He chooses not to survive. But then there's this other scene in the ship, in this boat, where these men are compelled to survive. I mean, you mentioned it earlier, they are sacrificing other people so that they can live. And that conflict, that dissonance, that that idea that that moral ambiguity that I think we get in a lot of his films is so powerful. And to value the life of yourself and then those around you it's just so jarring and at the same time it's incredibly wonderful and it's uncomfortable but it 
also makes sense. And so there's just, for me, I think that is the, that is the, those are the moments that really kind of solidify what story Nolan's telling. And that's life's not comfortable (laughs) when you're, when you have to survive everything that you know, all rules, all ways of thinking go out the window. I mean, you are just, you are in the moment having to make the choice. And when we get that scene later where that blind man is saying, you survived, that's enough. I think that validates those two moments for me. Because I think we get to the point where it's now elevating the choices that they make. That the choice to survive by whatever means necessary was still a good choice. And it was one that it's important. Survival is important. And I think in one way it says that survival really is and isn't a choice because it's being forced on you to do that and to make those hard decisions. So those two scenes um, were, were, were very intense for me. I was biting my fingernails. I, I remember stepping back and going, Oh my gosh, I'm going to tear my nails off because I'm, I'm kind of really into this, these scenes or whatever, but um, I enjoyed those. I think they helped inform me of the bigger narrative that, that Nolan was telling. And when I could get that, when I feel like I'm, getting what he's telling me, I feel like I get the gold star for being a Nolan audience member. And, and I feel good about that (laughs) as well. You should, my friend, um, that's good stuff. I remember very vividly thinking to myself during the trailers, when they showed the soldier walking out into the water, that he must just be going to get refreshed uh, from, from the sun or, or it was, must be hot. And he, you know, Mm -hmm. he's just taking off his canteen and going for a, I thought he was going for a swim. Um, and, it's the context for me that mm-hmm. that scene is given after the, the initial battles, after the boats have been sunken and things. And so we, we understand a lot more about wh- why that man might be thinking that choice, you know? And so mm-hmm. in the film itself, I felt like it was, it was more impactful than it was in the trailer, which is, was an interesting thing because they, they had shown it and mm-hmm. it, it was such a, a big moment. But I think, that because it didn't have the context in the trailer the same way, it was a really incredibly strong one in the movie, like mm-hmm. you said. Um, because it's it's literally probably what is it the only the only scene we get uh, of someone giving up? Yeah, I, I don't remember any other scene where uh, where people are just throwing themselves onto death. Yeah, but it's but it's important because I'm sure it happened, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that that's that is also one of the outcomes of the intense amount of fear that these men dealt with was some of them probably just couldn't take it, couldn't take it anymore mm-hmm. uh, and gave up. So it's good stuff, man. Well, uh, we are still good on Nolan films. What is that now? Five, six, seven. That makes seven out of the 11 that we've covered. Um, so, yeah. Wow. We are, we're moving right along. I don't know if we'll ever get those other ones done. Probably knowing us, I figure we will. But that's it for this one. So, Patrick, if people want to catch up with you and talk about Dunkirk or 48-hour film projects or any other good stuff, where can they find you online? You can find me at the big three social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Shoeless Patch. I'm at S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. And uh, you can also find out more about me and what I like, what I like to, you know, what makes me who I am at least in little pieces at my website, thisispatch.com. 
Uh, just a good couple of reminders. This week we've got um, several things coming up. We've got a spoiler-free spoiler free reaction to Atomic Blonde, so that should be pretty pretty interesting. We've also got our June donor pick episode on the faculty finally coming your way. Thank you guys for being incredibly patient with us. And then next week we have a little something different. This kind of came out of a conversation on social media. This is one of the reasons I love our Facebook group. And as an extension, I love our contributors to Thielen Film. There will be a an episode on the Michael Keaton-led comedy, Mr. Mom, <laughs> with special guests uh, Jeremy and Don, our regular weekly contributors to the Thielen Film website. This actually is a, another – it's also a, an excuse to give Aaron a week off because I know he is inundated with, with films and reviews and podcasts and occasionally having a job to go to. So at the very least, we are giving him a much-needed break to be able to take a breather for a little bit. So if you are even remotely interested in listening to this episode, I hope you are. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's three guys who are fathers of children. I have the least amount in in my camp at this point. But it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, if you have not seen the movie or if you want to watch it again, it's available right now on Amazon Prime. If you have Amazon Prime, so you can uh, check it out streaming for free there. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I don't know. What to say. And that'll do it for us. So keep feeling film. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I, you know, I'm as much as I was. This all stemmed also from the fact that they were talking about this movie in our Facebook group. And I was like, I've never championing seen it. it. I've never seen that. It. And they're like, you should go see that. And I was like, no, <laughs> why would I do that? Um, so like Patrick said, great opportunity. I think it's going to be a really fun, neat, neat week and unique episode for us. And it, it's exciting to, you know, get to the point now where we can do stuff like this and take a week off and, and uh, each other can take the reins and run with it with our contributors that are, are so awesome uh, throughout the weeks. So I, I'm going to watch it. And of course, because I got to listen to the episode, and I don't want to be spoiled. Um, so I guess in in a in a roundabout way, you guys have succeeded to get me to watch the movie by not letting me talk about it, which is just crazy. Um, but anyway, I hope that it works out, and uh, I hope everybody will listen because it should be a fun show. If you'd like to continue conversation with me, you can always find me in that Facebook group that we talk off all the time about. Uh, it's great; we love it. Lots of conversations and, and deep discussions going on every single week. Come there live there, talk there. It's fun. You can also find me all over the internet at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, what else? What else? What else? Just a reminder, come vote in that Facebook group. Now's the time to join. You got a week, the pinned post, come tell us whether you want us to do Edge of 17 or Kubo and the Two Strings. As Patrick mentioned, I actually adore both of these movies. So, I was not going to be able to make a choice. I, I was just, I was too torn. Patrick couldn't help me because he hasn't seen them. And so I threw it to the group <laughs> and the group has, is tied. So you guys help us, please. We need somebody to come break this tie and swing it one way or the other, please. Um, lastly, if you like the show and you're enjoying us, if you have a few minutes, please pop onto iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen and rate and review the show. Uh, give it a thumbs up or a five stars. Write a few words of what you enjoy. And maybe other people will see that and be inspired to give us a listen. And maybe we could be a part of their day as well and uh, help them to 
think about films in an emotional manner uh, and even come join the conversation with the rest of us and talk about them because that's really what it's all about. That's the best part of doing this whole show is just getting to talk with Patrick about movies. And we try to encourage you to come join us in our discussion group so that you can be a part of that and do the same thing once once the podcast is over. So that's all I got for this week. Uh, looking forward to the bonus episodes and the mini-sodes next week and hearing Patrick, Jeremy, and Don talk about Mr. Mom. Until next time, like we always say, stay positive. And keep feeling film.